you're also sabotaging me a little bit. I am. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Eppard. And I'm Steve Bird. And this is Marvel Reading Club. We're back. We are still doing October of 1964. Matt and I are just continuing to have the same conversation we were recording that you heard in the previous episode. Yes. That's where we are. And we are now on to Strange Tales for October 1964. And I believe Matt was taking this one. Yes, we have Strange Tales, The Human Torch and the F-11 Thing, The Sensational Submariner Tackles Our Two Battling Putties. It just is co-featuring the mysterious Doctor Strange, who just gets a little circle this week. It's clearly supposed to be the Human Torch and Thing's book. Obviously, the very first comic book crossover ever was an issue where the Human Torch fought Namor the Submariner back in 1940, and they know that they've got sort of a powerful combo they can always do when they want to combine Human Torch and Submariner. They have only fought once before in Strange Tales, and they figured, hey, we've earned another one. Let's go ahead and do another big fight Namor issue, which is a bigger deal than this poor hapless feature in Strange Tales featuring Human Torch usually gets to have. Now the thing is the co-star in it. Unfortunately, I like Dick Ayers as Spencer. I like Paul Reidman as an anchor. Once again, we've got an issue written by Word Sling and Stan Lee, drawn by Picture Sketch and Dick Ayers, inked by Ink Splatter and Paul Reidman, lettered by Pen Pushins S. Rosen. But they really just do not do good work together. It is yeah. just the worst of all possible worlds when Reidman inks Ayers. And so we begin with, of course, Human Torch and Thing are trying to kill each other, as they often are, having a seemingly very severe battle. Two reporters show up and they're like, oh, great, reporters going to show up and interview us. Like, no, we're here to interview Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Girl. And they're furious. They kick them out. Thing says, hey, hold everything. There's a picture coming in over our emergency alarm telescanner. So then they see Namor coming. They quickly review what happened when he attacked the city in Fantastic Four Annual Number One. So then they go out in their own little neat little submarine to they confront. Say the, they say the FF's famous U-car, I guess sort of like a U-boat. I think this is the first time we've ever seen the so-called U-car, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. And Ares yes. does a nice job designing it. So it's famous right from its first appearance, apparently. Yes, they have a big epic fight that goes undersea, overland. It's nice. Ares does a fine job with it. But then eventually... Reed and Sue come out, and Reed and Sue are like, hey, uh, stop fighting Namor. We actually invited him to the city to have a peace conference, and we forgot to tell you. And then <laughs> we forgot to turn off our emergency scanner that sent off a big alarm when he was coming into the city. Oh, and by the way, those two reporters who you beat up and sent away, they were going to interview us about how much we loved you guys. You have done nothing but heedlessly cause trouble today. Meanwhile, Namor is having none of it. Namor says, they tried to deceive me. I was lucky to escape so easily. But they will never get another chance to betray my trust. Next time we meet, it shall be a battle to the finish. So we have sort of a tragic issue here where there was a chance to make peace with Namor and Johnny and Ben squirted up. But it's basically just treated as like goofy twist. Oh, what a, what is any mix up this was? And not as the sort of tragic story it could have been. And you get an issue where Ayers is not being done any favors by Reinman, who does such a fantastic job making Kirby, but not a good job making Ayers. But Ayers is doing a pretty good job of quitting himself with the battle itself. Last time Human Torch fought Namor, Namor was doing all this bizarre stuff, like puffing himself up like a puffer fish. But we do get a little bit here where he does get the ability to light himself up with electricity. He says, I see you have forgotten one of my many powers, the power to duplicate the attack of the electric eel. So I think this is one of the last times we see Namor using fish powers. Thankfully, he is not puffing himself up like a puff for fish, which looks so ridiculous last time. I don't think that'll be around much longer. I don't know. I hope we don't see that again, but we might. There is another reference to the Beverly Hillbillies in this issue. <laughs> Apparently, that was the hottest show on TV thing. So he's like doing a backstroke while he has both Namor and Johnny by the scruffs of the neck. He's saying to himself, I better speed it up for a while. If we don't get back home soon, we'll miss the Beverly Hillbillies. Stan <laughs> always with the topical references. But let's go and get back to the much better back half of the book. Yes. Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. Mordo must not catch me. Unfortunately, we once again have Steve Dicko inked by George Bell. This is the final of 
the three issues in which George Bowling, Steve Dicko, every issue of Doctor Strange before that was inked by Steve Dicko, every issue after that for the rest of the run will be inked by Steve Dicko. Just these three issues, presumably giving Dicko a little time off to do Spider-Man Annual Number 1, although, of course, at this point, Dicko is also, as we will find out later in this episode, going to be taking over the Hulk, also inked by George Bell. So Dicko is adding more to his plate at this point. But thankfully, at this point, he will give up on this experiment and return to the inking. He will not be inking the Hulk, but he will return to inking Doctor Strange. He has been sorely missed. We see how proud we are that Stan Lee wrote this sensational thriller. How fortunate we are that Steve Dicko drew these magical masterpieces. How triumphant we are that Geo Bell inked these priceless panels. How ecstatic we are that Art Simek lettered these deathless phrases. So for once, Art Simek gets just as much bombast as the rest of them get. This is a pretty standard story. This is about as standard as Doctor Strange stories get. He is in a sanctum sanctorum. He is attacked by ectoplasmic goons set by Mordo. He then checks on the Ancient One, sees the Ancient One is gone, but that cannot be. He never leaves his chamber. He hasn't used the bathroom in years. He's just been <laughs> holding it in. He wears adult diapers. <laughs> Surely there is the possibility that he has stepped out to go to the loo, but Doctor Strange is not willing to consider that possibility. The need for toilets just never <laughs> comes up in many of these things. And later this month, when we get to a Hulk, there's going to be a whole thing where a guy's like, oh, I could just be in here forever. And I'm like, you didn't think about toilets. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Strange is like, what'd you do with the ancient one? He's like, oh, I hit him. You're not going to find it. Then you get to, a, you know, the standard ectoplasmic battle between Dr. Strange and Mordo, but it's really nicely done in this issue. Really great panel on page five where they each shoot up into giant size as they leave the Sanctum and Sanctorum. Of course, it's comic books. So they're like, we're going to fight all over the world, which means now we're fighting by the Eiffel Tower. Now we're fighting by the Sphinx and the pyramids. Now we're fighting in various other famous places around the world. And then they end up in the jungles of the Himalayas. I'm not sure the Himalayas actually have jungles, but no. where he finds the ancient one is being held prisoner. He once again gets in a huge fight with Mordo. And unfortunately, as happens far too often in this book, he just wins the fight by opening up his amulet. And it's like, oh no, you opened up the amulet. I'd forgotten that you do that every other time I ever fight you and it defeats me every time. He once again rescues the ancient one. Once again, he's like, uh, Ancient One, shouldn't we really just kill off Mordo at this point? And Ancient One, as always, is like, Mordo now knows the measure of your powers, as if you have not already shown him so many times in the past. He knows the might you possess. He will not dare attack us again, not for a long, long time. And Doctor Strange is just clearly rolling his eyes as he hears this, and he says, it is not for me to question your decision, Master, but I shall never relax my vigilance, not so long as Mordo lives. And, uh, <laughs> like, Ancient One, once somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. That is the mistake he keeps making. He takes the Ancient One home, and they leave Mordo just sort of there, surely planning on doing the exact same damn thing next month. So this is <laughs> a very rote issue of Doctor Strange. It is the most generic possible Doctor Strange plot, and yet it is beautifully drawn by Deco, you know, and not massacred by George Pell. George Pell does not do a terrible job inking it, but nowhere near as good as if Deco had inked it himself. And the sequence where they're going all around the world is really beautiful. It's a standard Doctor Strange issue, but the standard Doctor Strange issue is pretty great. George Bell, while, or George Russos is his real name, doesn't seem to be doing a good job on some of these issues here, but he seems to do better on Ditko than he does on Kirby for some Yeah, he does. The Ancient One apparently is not that wise. He's ancient. <laughs> no but he is not wise. But yeah, some nice visuals in here, the sort of smoke tendrils that we get on page nine and the big egg. Granted, the inking on the middle of the three egg panels is unfortunate. As you said, it's a rote issue, but we get some nice art. Yeah. Thankfully, next issue, Dicko back on inking and for the rest of the book. We can look forward to that. Yes. So now I guess we're moving on to Tales of Suspense. Yes? Yes. All right. So, Tales of Suspense, featuring the power of Iron Man, see our mighty Golden Avenger in mortal combat with Captain America. Why are these two gallant allies battling each other to the bitter end? Mainly to get you to buy this mag and see the answer inside. If we can't always be clever, we can at least be honest. This, this is one of the things that, you know, when people you know, say, oh, everything was just Kirby and Ditko. Like, you know, Lee didn't do anything. This is pure Lee. And yes. this really, this gets 
baked into, just woven into the DNA of the Marvel Universe. This kind of, on one hand, being this bombastic, over-the-top master of ceremonies, and other times being this self-deprecating, kind of almost groucho Marxish kind of personality, and just sort of straddling those two worlds. So, you know... <laughs> You know, this just jumps out at me as that here. We have another backdoor pilot here where, once again, yes. Captain America is about to take over the back half of this book. This issue has our final Watcher backup. But then they're going ahead and first trying out Captain America in the front half of the book. This is the same thing they did with Hulk in the Giant Man Wasp stories, where first they had the Hulk guest star in a Giant Man Wasp story in the front half of the book. And then they went ahead and had him take over the back half of the book. So that's what we've got going on here. We start off with uh, Iron Man fighting a shark, uh, I guess, just to test out his underwater abilities with his uh, armor. So I guess they now must have established that he has something to cover up his eye and mouth holes uh, when he goes underwater, because earlier he didn't have those. They used to make it clear that any water getting on his suit at all would cause him to rust and die. <laughs> that He was wearing Crimson Dynamo and Crimson Dynamo was like, no, you can't let us get wet. We'll both die. So seemingly he has fixed his rust problem and uh, can be underwater all he wants here. And I like this. Yeah, this is Lee Heck, Ayers, and Rosen. And I like the art here when he's fighting the shark underwater. Yes. Uh, so then uh, we see another shot where somebody is taking some money to allow Craven and Chameleon to sneak back into the country. Last time we saw them, they were on a ship being taken out of the country. So now they're sneaking back in. Well, um, of course, I, that's not the last time we saw them because Craven was then in Amazing Spider-Man. Well, because oh, then Craven right. was in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1. But this issue very clearly takes place before Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, which yeah, had already it, come out at least a month or two before. Marvel Unlimited, I think it said that uh, Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1 actually came out this same month. Okay. So, yeah, so clearly, but clearly this picks up where Craven left off at the end of Spider-Man number 15. So this is yes. clearly set before Amazing Spider-Man annual number one. I did look it up and they are indeed related, Craven and Chameleon. But I think, I think I said cousins and they're actually like, I think half brothers or something like that. Okay. You don't find that out yet, but you know, now they're just two Russian dudes who both want to sneak into the country and make some trouble. They're climbing up this cliff from where they landed on their little boat and run into Iron Man. And uh, Iron Man knocks out Craven and starts dragging him off like a caveman. Uh, Chameleon, though, stays hidden. He's like, oh, OK, well, I'll just let my half brother there just be dragged away because I'm going to just sneak away and do something else. This whole thing is rather refreshing to have the bad guys going like, we're going to sneak into the country. And the hero is like 10 steps ahead of the bad guys for once. He's like, oh, there you are, Craven. I knew you were going to be here. I knew you were sneaking into the country today. I seemingly got a good network of uh, spies of his own or some way of being on top of what the bad guys are up to. And I'm going to knock you out with one punch and defeat you and then haul you off, dragging your feet through the sand off to jail. And it's like, you know, given how far behind the eight ball our heroes normally are, this is really refreshingly on the ball. Yes. And actually thinking through, you know, it's like, oh, OK, they have to bribe their way onto a boat to get into that. Chameleon sees Craven being dragged off and is thinking, OK, well, that's fine. I'll let that happen. I've got some other plans I will now take care of. And then a battered, bruised and torn Captain America comes stumbling in to Stark's outer office. You'd think that some security guard along the way might have already radioed up that something was going on, but apparently he just stumbles right in. I guess they've got a door right out under the street. And what Captain America is doing out in Queens, that's another question. So Iron Man gets the alert from Pepper and Happy that he needs to come out immediately. So he comes out as Iron Man and uh, escorts Captain America back into his office, where Captain America then tells him this story Captain America says that he was gassed by an old man who he thought he was trying to rescue. But then it turns out that, of course, was the chameleon. And so then the chameleon puts Captain America in some sort of strange electronic thought transference machine. Although, also remember, this is the story that Captain America is currently telling to Iron Man. So who knows how true this actually is, but yeah. This is the first of two times this month 
where the villain is telling a lie to the hero, but it's an oddly honest lie. Like yes. he's he's fingering the chameleon. He's saying like, well, the chameleon is involved in all this. Like, oh crap, no, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't <laughs> have revealed that the chameleon was involved in any of this. I could have kept my name out of it. But you have this later with Wonder Man and the Avengers where he's like, okay, let me tell you the story of the Avengers. So first I was given my powers by Baron Zemo. Oh wait, I should have left him out of this. <laughs> I didn't have to tell a lie that was dishonest. I'm sorry, I can't talk about any of my clients' secret illegal accounts. Oh, crap. Did I say he was a client? Oh, crap. Did I say it was illegal? Oh, crap. Did I say it was secret? Oh, I need a drink. In his story, Captain America then escapes as Chameleon is behind and supposedly has all of Captain America's memories so that he he can better uh, impersonate Captain America. Iron Man says... Call Captain America a doctor, and then I need to go out and do something here. Chameleon had told him that Captain America was going to be infiltrating the Avengers as Captain America and gain their trust and beat them from the inside. Uh, Of course, this was the Chameleon who just told Iron Man all this. So uh, at that point, Iron Man then accosts Captain America in Avengers headquarters, and we get a big knock him out, drag him out fight scene between the two of them that lasts for several pages. Happy and Pepper actually head out in one of Tony's cars with some sort of wayfinding direction machine that they found that supposedly points them unerringly to Iron Man, which is a weird device to have, but okay. Well, they find it odd that they just find this device in Tony Stark's car. They're like, that's an interesting thing for Tony Stark to have in his car. Well, anyway, as long as he's got it, let's use it. But also, why would Tony Stark have something in his car to track where Iron Man is? (laughs) That's an excellent question. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's part of him setting the whole secret identity thing a little firmer. (laughs) That, you know, this this is absolutely absurd. Why would he even have one of these if he was uh, Iron Man? Captain America ducks into a construction power station. But right then, Iron Man enters through the skylight and they start up their fight again. Captain America ends up using some of the equipment in this factory or they said it was a power station but it really seems more like it's a gravel gravel or a concrete factory that's what it really seems like to me captain america uses some of the big buckets of gravel to go ahead and attack captain america they they generally speaking in this issue have to go to quite ludicrous extremes to make it seem like captain america and iron man would be a even fight because yeah in reality iron man would quickly mop the floor with Captain America, who has no powers. They have to keep putting them in locations where Captain America can use the location against Iron Man. Iron Man is having all the stuff dumped on him, and that's right when Pepper and Happy come in, and they are basically suffocating on this dust, which seems very unsafe. Uh, And especially very unsafe, considering that Happy then is stumbling around blind in this stuff, and ends up falling into a big pit that's here. But Captain America then saves him. He just happens to be close enough to grab him by the wrist and pull him back up. At this point, Iron Man's like, wait a minute. Why would the chameleon save Happy? That doesn't make any sense. But right before they can have their whole confrontation, it turns out that Pepper is getting pulled into a sand pit, and which seems to be acting more like quicksand than sand. But, you know. it it does what it needs to do happy is like oh i'll save you but then he leans on a water valve and that sprays out and just gets them all wet and dirty and so pepper is as angry at happy as she has ever been for like ruining her clothes i think when you know you'd think that if she was already submerged in sand that probably would have already done something to that um a big steam shovel then comes from behind and starts attacking them it turns out that is it all the whole rest of the Avengers? No. No, just Giant Man. Yeah. So Giant Man has figured this out at this point. He comes in through the skylight, takes care of the Irsats, Captain America, the uh, chameleon. Yeah. But just yeah. a bizarre way to end this issue. It's like, you know, you have this big knockdown Captain America versus Iron Man fight. And then in the end, oh, it's all solved by Giant Man, who randomly shows up. Giant Man with the wasp on his shoulder, providing no actual help, of course. It seems like of all the bizarre ways to end this issue, that is one of the most bizarre. And Wasp, as you point out, who is there just because she's there, at one point says, too bad Thor is out of town. 
what with most of the Avengers being here, this is like an old class reunion. It's like, don't you have a meeting once a month or no, sorry, <laughs> yeah. once a week? Sorry, once a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, seems seems a little bit odd. Chameleon is arrested. Jan makes a comment about what happened to Pepper's hair, and she is very upset that Happy did not tell her how horrible her hair looked earlier. It's like you were drowned in sand and then in like sandy sludge. What do you think your hair is going <laughs> to look like? <laughs> Iron Man then is sort of introspective about how easily he was fooled by the chameleon. And at the end, it says, big news, starting next ish, Captain America will be a regular co-feature in Iron Man magazine. Yeah, I like how Iron Man, you sort of see him looking like Rodan's the thinker here. And he says, sometimes I grow overconfident in my superpower drummer. I must always remember President Johnson's favorite motto, quote, let us reason together, end quote. This is apparently Johnson's motto, he says, for a man's brain is still his most potent weapon. Generally speaking, we don't quote Johnson much these days. We don't think of him (laughs) as a great thinker or a great speaker, but it's interesting that at the time he was seen as a noted advocate of reasoning. It's an all right issue. Uh, It's a nice way to go ahead and, you know, introduce the readers to the idea that Captain America is going to be in this book going forward. As you said, it's a little bit weird to have Giant Man show up as a deus ex machina and finish the whole story. I actually kind of like that in a way, and that New York is teeming with super characters. You would think they would stumble into each other just accidentally from time to time. So any other thoughts about that? One eternal source of stories in the Marvel Universe is figuring out why there's a big misunderstanding that causes two heroes to fight each other. Because they know that's what kids really want. They're like, who would win in a fight between this hero and that hero? And this is yet another epic misunderstanding that causes these two heroes to fight each other. When they had the Giant Man story, which served as a backdoor pilot to reintroducing the Hulk, I felt like at the end of that issue, like, I remember the Hulk. This could be a good book. This has set up the Hulk to be a character who could have his own book month in, month out. You have shown who his supporting cast is going to be, what sort of stories he's going to be having. We don't get that at all with Captain America here. We don't get at all the sense that okay, you know, I know who Captain America's supporting cast is going to be. I know what his stories are going to be like once he gets his own book. And indeed, he will never have his own supporting cast. It will take a long time for him to really become a going concern. It'll take a long time for the Captain America stories to really work on their own. And really, they'll sort of give up. They'll have modern day stories with him that will run for a while. And then they'll be like, this isn't really working. And then they'll just go back to telling World War II stories with him for a while. And then when he comes back, they'll eventually add Sharon Carter and they'll eventually have him interacting with Nick Fury more and sort of make more of a story out of it. But Already, we've got an indication of trouble here. Already, we've got a sense of like, if this is supposed to be a backdoor pilot, it doesn't really work. You have not really set up Captain America as a character who can sustain himself yet. And that is foreshadowing of trouble to come. Yes, the Captain America feature will be kind of rudderless for quite a while going forward here. And yeah, as you say, that is telegraphed by this. Okay, so we are now moving on to the final Tales of the Watcher, which is, you know, kind of a shame. Although, you know, if they kept this up too long, we would probably, I don't know if they're getting repetitive, but, you know, we keep on trying to find their twist endings of how the Watcher can do stuff given his vow. Uh, And we're going to have that again here. But, you know, they've been able to keep it relatively fresh for this entire run, which uh, I actually find quite impressive. But this is going to be our final Tales of the Watcher story. I think the most noteworthy thing about this story is here on the first page of the story, special announcement. We're bursting at the seams with pride. We've managed to rehire an artist who is one of our top stars many years ago. So, after too long an absence, we present the thrilling artistry of George Tuska. And yes. George Tuska will go on to continue to do good work for Marvel uh, over the coming years, including becoming the regular artist on Iron Man at one point in the future. But then isn't he also the one who uh, was credited as co-creating uh, Luke Cage Power Man? Yes, I think you're right. I think he is. You know, we're going to see a lot of work from Tuska for the next 10 years. I'm never a big fan of his. I was not a fan at all of his run on Iron Man. I don't feel like that was a good match of artist and book. I feel like he does a fine job on this story. I feel like he did a pretty good job on Power Man. And I just recently reread all those early Power Man issues. And he does 
a perfectly serviceable job there. I would say not one of Marvel's great artists. I would say that he's not going to particularly cut himself in glory for his next 10 years of Marvel books he's about to do. Okay. Um, yeah, but he he will be going on to be a significant contributor to the Marvel Universe for the next decade or so. Yeah. A Tale of Most Compelling Merit by Stan Lee. Illustrations of Singular Excellence by George Tuska. Lettering of Breathtaking Adequacy by Art Simak. So once again, going back to the hopefully self-deprecating, but possibly just humiliating <laughs> credits for uh, Art Simak. Notable that Tuska is penciling and inking himself here, which is always nice when you have someone who can handle both of those and does a nice job inking himself here. Yes, yes, he does. Some nice little facial expressions on the invading aliens in various cases here. Mm -hmm. The leader has this interesting sort of toothy look to his face. The second page of the story, a lieutenant of his who's over his shoulder has this weird kind of sardonic smile, or I don't know whether sardonic would be the right word. But, uh, yeah, doing some great stuff with some of the characterizations here, even for minor little stuff. This race of conquering aliens is out to destroy the Watcher. Apparently, they have taken over this entire sector of space everything except the Watcher. And so now uh, that's it. We need to take care of him so that we can entirely rule this area, which seems kind of dumb. You know, he would just sit there and watch what you're doing. So you probably just ought to leave him alone. But <laughs> they go and approach the Watcher on this asteroid that he is sitting on for some reason. Once again, we have the whole thing about, you know, so we can do anything and you're sworn not to do anything, right? He's like, well, yes, I can't attack or harm anybody. It's also interesting that these aliens are giant. Because they are larger than the Watcher, who has been shown to be three or four times as big as a person. But right away, Tuska is already falling down on the job on his first story back because the relative sizes of the aliens and the Watcher do not match at all from panel to panel. So at the bottom of page three, the Watcher is clearly looking at the crotch of the alien who is standing in front of him. And then two panels later on page four, he is looking at the shoulder of the alien standing in front of him. So the not not consistent size difference, size differentiation at all. That's one thing that's always going to be a little bit of a problem when you've got characters that are significantly larger or smaller than each other, but not as large or small as like insect size. Right. Yeah. So if you've got and I think that's one of the problems they had with Giant Man for a lot of the early run was they had established that it's like, oh, OK, he can't make himself too big. He has to limit himself to, what was it, 10 feet, 12 feet, something like that. And yeah. But, I mean, it's really super difficult to go ahead and keep drawing this person at a different scale from everybody else and keeping them at the same relative scale to everybody else. And so his height would just seem to fluctuate all over the place. Uh, and I think they eventually more or less ended up writing that in, that, you know, he got more control over some of this stuff. Yeah. The aliens are then like, okay, the... Warlord says, I thought you'd soon start begging. I knew you weren't as mighty as the legends claim. And the Watcher says, you are wrong, Warlord. The Watcher does not beg. I was about to say that all of your power is as nothing to me. He says, you lie! And here and now, I shall drive that lie back into your throat. And he has all his warriors aim their weapons. And then the Watcher pulls his twist ending, which is he causes time to accelerate to an, an unimaginable degree right in that little sector of space so that all of these warriors, he does not harm them per se, but he allows time to take their toll on them and make them into old, weak aliens within a matter of moments. You know, he's like, well, I didn't do it to you. Time did it to you. <laughs> I just made time do it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, they do acknowledge in this case that this is the final Tales of the Watcher here as opposed to the Wasp. We had to realize belatedly that we had read the last Wasp tale because they didn't warn us at the time. But here they're like, look, we tried. We tried to make the Watcher work. You got to give us some credit. We did some okay stories. It's all over now. Uatu, the Watcher, will never again have stories in which he is the hero and is actually defeating bad guys ever again, as far as I know, in the rest of the Marvel Universe. You know, and this was such an interesting little book because it never made the cover. If you're just looking through the covers of all Marvel comics, you would never know that Watu had ever had his own feature. So I don't know if I ever mentioned this. You know, at one point I was saying, like, should I try to 
get work as a writer for Marvel Comics when my screenwriting career was sort of tapering off. Mm -hmm. And one of the pitches I came up with, and this was before the What If TV show was on, called The Watch. Uatu suddenly says, I've been through the last thousands of years not interfering in human affairs. That's all been leading up to now when that's all going to change. And it turns out the reason I've been looking at all these alternate worlds over the years is I want to put together a badass team of, you know, like Vampire Wolverine and all of these what if world versions of the heroes. And we're going to try to solve this big evil conspiracy. And I was like, this could even be a big summer event where he makes every Marvel book then fight against, you know, what if versions of themselves this is what you're supposed to do when you're pitching comics to Marvel. You use existing Marvel IP and, you know, new interesting ways that they've never done it before. And I was like, you know, they've never gotten a book out of this. But this is exactly what they did later with the What If cartoon on Disney Plus, where they had the Watcher, you know, looking at all these alternate reality versions of these heroes and then eventually putting them together in a team to defeat a bad guy. I am the inventor that they owe me millions of dollars, even though I literally never once pitched this to anybody else and it had never even left my head. And then later I'm like, I tried to find my own pitch and I found I had never even written it down. It literally had only ever existed inside my head. So you're the guy who wrote Thriller. I'm the guy who wrote Thriller. Yeah. (laughs) No, it was Beat It. So you're the guy who wrote Beat It. (laughs) Whenever you've got people making money, there's always going to be a million people going like, wait, I'm the guy. Yes, I've got my own I'm the guy story, but that's for another time. I really enjoyed this series of Uachu comics. I think it's been a lot of fun coming up with different reasons every month why he is able to, in this one exception, use his powers to defeat these bad guys. But there's also just been some exploration of what does it mean philosophically to have to deal with these restrictions? And is it right? This whole feature has been one big trolley problem. I keep coming back to the good place. Well, you know, is it more just to put your hand on the trolley and, you know, result in one person getting killed or keep your hand off the trolley and resulting in 50 people getting killed? They have taken that essential moral dilemma and they've done like seven Watcher stories at this point. They've run like seven Watcher stories out of it. and It's been fun to read and I'll miss it. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump on to Tales to Astonish number 60. So for the first time, we've got Giant Man and the Wasp, although the Wasp is being de-emphasized at this point. We've got Giant Man in the first half of the book, Incredible Hulk in the back half of the book. They split the cover right down the center. They each get equal billing. We begin the Giant Man story, Giant Man and the Wonderful Wasp, The Beasts of Berlin, excitingly written by Stan Lee, exquisitely drawn by Dick Ayers, extravagantly inked by Paul Reinman, emotionally lettered by Art Simek. Once again, Ayers and Reinman, not the best combination. Yeah, this is the same team that did Human Torch this month. Yes, this is. But they seem to, well, I don't know, do they do a better job in this one? Maybe I, maybe. I Not really. No, <laughs> no. Now I'm looking at I'm like, no, they definitely didn't. Never mind. So we have Ayers and Ryan in the same team that did a poor job with Human Torch this month. Does an even poorer job here on this Giant Man and the Wasp story. You would think that there would be nothing more fun in the world to do than giant commie ape army. <laughs> this is the dream assignment for any Marvel Comics artist. And yet. Ayers does not rise to the task. Absolutely not. Giant Man is very unhappy. He is yelling at his fan club, who are he all sends them scattering. And Wasp is like, you've never yelled at your fan club before. And he's like, I just read a newspaper article about how my old government friend Lee Kearns has been taken captive behind the Berlin Wall. Do you remember this story? Because they, they say that that was in Tales of Astonish 44. I have some vague memory of this, but do you remember anything about the... This, the yeah, that was that was the the issue that introduced the Wasp, Tales of Astonish 44, the issue that ah. introduced this whole story. So then we get something that rarely happens in any Hank Pym story over the years. He mentions his first wife, which he very rarely does. She has not really come up since the issue that introduced the Wasp. And he's like, oh, yes, he flashes back, tells us the whole story of the commies killing his wife and says, and now Lee Kearns, who is our friend, has also been taken captive behind the Iron Curtain. And he just ditches the wasp and he's like, I'm going to go take care of this without you. You just stay here. And she's, you know, crying. But she says, what a fool I've been. I should have guessed that must be why he seems so unromantic, so distant. He can't forget Maria, his first wife. And I will say that he doesn't just say like, no, you got to stay here. He says, look, I lost one woman that I love basically in this kind of thing with something involving Lee Kearns. I don't want to also lose you. You know, so yeah. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's at least like, look, this is a personal thing. I couldn't take it you know, <laughs> if anything were to happen to you. True. So then he gets in a jet. He goes over to the Berlin Wall. He meets with a neutral correspondent oh, who in, tells in, him what's going on. In full costume, wearing a green trench coat over his red and blue costume with a white fedora with a brown headband. 
what what are you what are you doing? <laughs> what are you even wearing? <laughs> what are you even doing? Because we again see him use his bizarre little device. He always has so many bizarre ways of getting around. He uses his suction tip spring-powered climbing device to shrink down and then climb the Berlin Wall, gets on a flying ant, which he could have just done in the first place, finds Lee Kearns in prison. He's going to free Lee Kearns, but Lee Kearns is like, wait, we can't get away yet. They're turning giant apes. So we've already have one commie villain with super intelligent apes. Now they've got other commie villains who were using a strange ray, you would think they would give it some name like the Q-ray or something, but instead they just call it a strange ray that is making these apes super intelligent. They're putting little hammer and sickle unitards on the apes. and <laughs> Purple and pink. Uh, Purple and, and pink. And uh, well, one thing I have to say, you know, you were like, oh, this is a dream assignment. Killer commie super intelligent apes. Like, you know, how how could this not be super fun? It seems clear to me that Dick Ayers had no interest in doing any research on what gorillas look like or move like or anything like that. No. <laughs> Some of these things are just like, what is he doing? Like, especially on panel two, page eight, looking at that ape face. It's just like, what, what were you doing? What were you thinking? And uh, jumping forward a little bit on page 10, he drew that ape like three times and then just doubled all of them. <laughs> yeah. Which is, of course, what would actually happen in a comic book today where they actually just copy and paste the art from panel to panel to panel and it's unbearable. But at least at the time they couldn't do that, they were actually redrawing these things. I am more than willing to jump ahead. This story is terrible. <laughs> yes. He eventually, he turns the ray on the commie scientist and finds that just as it makes apes act like humans, it makes humans act like apes. It's just sort of a ape-human reverso ray that will cause each to act like the others. Well, um, I, I mean, this this is apparently how things work in the Marvel Universe, as we saw with the lizards serum. Yes, exactly. It makes people more like lizards and lizards more like people. Ant-Man then uses his little climbing wire. It's strong enough to use to bind six apes to each other. You make that thing super strong, dude. I, I think it's... Uh, it's not a good use of that device to just have it be something to haul yourself up walls. It's one of the strongest devices known to man. Ant-Man finally has Lee Kearns just climb on his shoulders and he smashes his way out through the Berlin Wall, rescues him, and a bunch of American tanks are waiting on the other side of the wall to make sure the commies don't follow them. Hank then goes home to Jan. He claims that nothing much exciting happened, but she has seen the whole thing reported on the news. Says, Is that so well, Mr. M? For your information, the late TV news has a report of someone who almost took East Berlin apart. Now, who do you suppose that could be? Give me a hint, Jan. I haven't the slightest idea. A truly terrible issue. Uh, really, really, really terrible. Airs Reinman art, even weaker than it was on Human Torch. Should be just a ridiculously fun story. Would have been if Kirby was drawing it. But it is no fun at all. It's nice to see Maria mentioned again. There is some real weight to this Hank Pym character. That he does have a weighty backstory that is never touched on. But this issue just makes you wish they had they would forget all about it once again. A couple of comments about some visuals here. On page 12, top right corner, uh, where all of the uh, commie soldiers end up acting like apes. Is it just me or does that look like a uh, Jack Davis panel? It does, yeah. <laughs> Jack Davis, of course, an old EC artist who then became most famous to people in my generation as a humor artist in Mad Magazine. And he went to our high school. That's true. I swear at one point I saw an old bulldog banner that he had actually drawn uh, that someone pulled out of storage somewhere. I'm probably making that up, but I could swear I remember seeing this and that it probably was just destroyed when they uh, rebuilt the school. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, early on, they didn't really seem to attribute any real super strength to Hank as giant man or invulnerability or anything like that. He was just as strong as that size muscles would make you, but that's not necessarily that incredibly super strong. And yet here he just does a whole battering ram job with his head through the Berlin wall, which, you know, also seems to cause no damage to Lee Kearns, who is, you know, <laughs> right there with him head first going through that wall. As much as Dick Ayers is not taking as much advantage of having fun of, with this as he should, he at least does on that one panel where everyone's acting like apes. But that's about it. Yeah, I say in my notes, I made this sound like a good issue. Avenging dead wife, fighting an army of commie apes. Sounds great, but it's poorly written and the Ayers-Reinman art is terrible. When Giant Man shows up, 
Uh, Lee Kearns at one point says, this is incredible. I never dreamed that Ant-Man was also Giant-Man, and yet I should have guessed. Yes, yes, you should have guessed. <laughs> it's like, how is this a secret? Does everybody not know this already? I don't know. The fan club certainly seemed to know it already. Yeah, I thought that was generally public knowledge. I guess not. So then we get to the back half of the book. So this is our first actual Hulk solo story that we've had since his own comic book was canceled with Hulk number six about two years ago. The first five issues of the Hulk solo book were penciled by Jack Kirby and at least co-founded by him. The final issue was penciled and co-founded by Steve Ditko. It is one of my all-time favorite Marvel comics. That was the one where you fought the Metal Master. And I thought it was a shame that that comic was abruptly canceled after that wonderful issue that Steve Ditko did. Well, now they've revived the book as the back half of Tales to Astonish, and they have brought Steve Ditko back as illustrator and presumably at least co-potter of the Incredible Hulk feature. Unfortunately, he does not come back to ink, and they get George Bell. They get George Russo's to be the inker, and I don't remember if he inks it going forward. I believe that Ditko is not going to be inking this feature going forward. He will continue to pencil it and help write it going forward from this point on, but not inking it. I don't remember if it's Bell or if it's somebody else, but it's really going to suffer. Dicko is eventually going to do some really nice work. He's going to introduce the leader and the leader's rubber men and have a lot of fun with that. And Colonel Gwen Talbot. Oh yeah, all sorts of things. And also it's during his run that we have our first glimpse of the Hulk as the Hulk that you and I knew from the 70s and 80s. Yeah. You know, the Hulk smash kind of character rather than the kind of gruff, violent dude. And we're going to see at least a glimpse of that during this run as well. So this really is a consequential run. And they do Oh, no, it's it. it's good. It's good. It's And it's going to do a lot to make the Hulk work as an ongoing concern. But there's a reason why when we talk about Dicko, we talk about Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, and we never talk about the Hulk, even though he had a nice, long, consequential run on the Hulk. And the number one reason is that he's not making himself on the Hulk, and he was making himself, for the most part, on those two books. The credits, because this is the Incredible Hulk, it says, written by Incredible Stan Lee, illustrated by Incredible Steve Ditko, inked by Incredible Geo Bell, lettered by Inedible Sam Rosen. So. Yes. <laughs> so then we begin with the Hulk turning back into Bruce Banner in his underground cave. We've got Betty Ross and Thunderbolt Ross hanging out with a giant robot that Bruce Banner has built, but of course he has disappeared. Bruce Banner returns, but there is a spy who is lurking. He is, of course, in the shadow of Venetian blinds. I've got to say that Betty, it looks like George Russo basically redrew her face or took a lot of liberties in how he inked her face throughout. Her face does not look like a Ditko face anywhere in the story. Yeah, I think you're right. Bruce stays up late working on the robot, sees the spy, chases him away, becomes the Hulk. Hulk loses all interest in everything and just jumps away, leaves the spy there to slip inside the robot. We missed a very consequential little bit there right before he turns back into the Hulk. And the end of page three, he finally figures out, oh, that's what turns me into the Hulk is when I get stressed or pressured or, you know, my blood pressure goes up. Top of page four, he says, and now that I know, all I have to do is avoid any strain, any undue pressure or worry, and I won't change to the Hulk. Meanwhile, I'm working for General Thunderbolt Ross <laughs> on deadly weapons of mass destruction for the U.S. Army that I'm always not quite getting done right because I keep turning into the Hulk. So, yeah, I think it's going to be super easy to avoid any strain, any undue pressure. The other thing that I will point out before you go on here is they established that for the first time in this issue. But in this point of time, they also then say that the same thing happens for the Hulk. That if the Hulk gets particularly stressed or under pressure, then he'll turn back into Banner. By the time we were reading Hulk, things worked opposite for the Hulk. That the Hulk, you know, gets relaxed, gets unconcerned, he will turn back into Banner. But they really will go back and forth on that for years. I know that when he becomes a regular member of the Defenders, he's just like always the Hulk. Yeah. Sleeping and eating and having fun and, you know, all sorts of different stuff. And it's kind of a retcon. They're sort of claiming this is what's always been going on. It's like, well, clearly that is not what was going on before. It was, you know, right. having to do with the sun going down or having to do with hitting yourself with the ray or various ways they've done it. But this is good. Having to run off and hit yourself with the ray in the cave didn't really work. Having it happen when the sun went up and down wasn't as interesting. The Ditko is 
you know, to the degree that he is plotting or co-plotting the book here, is coming up with a good, solid basis for Hulk stories going forward. It's going to be the main way that Hulk stories work from this point on over the course of the many upcoming years. And they'll move away from it occasionally, and then they'll always come back to it. The spy ends up inside the robot armor. Thunderbolt Ross eventually figures out, like, uh, dude, if that banner inside the armor, then he's turned evil, or it's someone else inside the armor. The Hulk goes ahead and finally realizes, oh, wait, I should go ahead and come back and deal with the fact that there is this evil robot going around. They get in a big fight the last several pages, and then, yes, they make it clear that he realizes he is changing and he has to sort of roll away from the robot because he is getting stressed and that is causing him to change instead of getting more relaxed. Always Thunderbolt Ross and Betty just come off like the world's biggest idiots because they see the Hulk going around wearing nothing but purple pants and then goes tumbling down a hill and then they crest the hill and they find Bruce Banner wearing nothing but the same purple pants at the bottom of the hill and they're like, what happened to the Hulk? Oh, Thunderbolt Ross and Betty Ross, (laughs) you are the world's biggest idiots even more so than anyone else in any Marvel comic who can't figure out somebody's secret identity. Bruce Banner decides he's going to make another robot and that's going to solve the problem. Thunderbolt Ross is accusing him of being a traitor. He says, as far as I'm concerned, I still don't trust you as far as I can throw you and I'm going to report my suspicions to the Pentagon. I don't care how big a genius you're supposed to be. And then the whole issue sort of leaves off on a cliffhanger. So this is an issue where it seems like this is going to work. It seems like this book is basically going to work the spy taking over the robot is a fairly lame generic Hulk villain. We don't have some of the genius elements that are going to come into play soon with the leader and with other really fun things that are going to happen in this book. Dicko is going to really do a nice job. Dicko and Lee working together are going to do a really nice job with some of the stuff that's coming up. But we get sort of a soft start to this, and it's fine. This is a perfectly fine issue. Yeah, we're about to be getting some important stuff in the Hulk's evolution as a character. George Russo's inks on here they kind of work for me for this kind of story. You know, when he's inking Ditko on Doctor Strange, it just looks wrong. But yeah. when he's inking Ditko here on the Hulk, I, I, I think it works a lot better than we've seen a lot of the other stuff. You know, it's not wonderful, but it's, it's decent. On page six, uh, this is what I was referring to earlier. The spy realized that the, the nuclear explosion has somehow fused the hatch that he got into the ro- robot through. And then he's like, oh, I'm trapped in here. But then he says, but why should I care? I have all the room I need inside here. The robot can get me food, water. Okay, how is it going to do that? I don't know. (laughs) Whatever I need. And as long as I remain inside, nothing will harm me. The world will be mine. Once again, no one ever thinks of toilets in these kinds of situations. <laughs> Everybody in the Marvel Universe wears adult diapers unless there's some reason not to. They always just leave the house wearing adult diapers in case there's any reason why they'll need them. That would not explain how he could stay in this thing indefinitely. <laughs> Your adult diapers are going to fill up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think ultimately this Hulk issue sort of works, but it also proves that Hulk really needs Rick. I think that he is an essential part of the Hulk formula. Eventually, they will realize he is not an essential part of the Avengers. He should be taken off the Avengers. We still, in this month's Avengers, we won't see Rick, but we will see the Teen Brigade. But they'll eventually realize, okay, this is just silly. Let's take Rick and the Teen Brigade out of the Avengers, and let's bring Rick back over to the Hulk where he belongs. But so we're not there yet. We're now moving on to Avengers. Our final book of the month, Avengers number nine. Yes. So Marvel proudly introduces Wonder Man, the newest, most dynamic surprise character from the world-famous House of Ideas. Now, this is going to be a little weird in that he really is just sort of a one-and-done kind of villain with a twist heroic ending, which we're going to get to later. And then we really don't hear from him much again for quite a while until he shows back up in the 70s as a hero joining the Avengers. And he was in the very first Avengers issues that you and I read. Yes. When he was wearing his safari jacket costume. (laughs) Bizarre, bizarre safari jacket costume. A lot of people hate it, although I, you know, I really like it. It's what I grew up seeing him as. And honestly, it's better than this. Oh, yeah. I don't like the squiggly stuff. I don't like the Christmas color theme. It's just weird. No, he has always been one of the worst costumed heroes in the Marvel Universe, and his costumes have just been all over the map, too. Like, this is a very strange costume. And then to jump from this to wearing just a red safari jacket with blue pants 
is a major change in the character. And uh, yeah, because that was in the very first comic I've read, the red spray jacket will always be his true costume as far as I'm concerned, even though I can acknowledge that it was truly bizarre. And then there was the Harlequin type costume that he wore at one point in West Coast Avengers. Everybody was writing into the letters pages just like that thing is horrible. Get it off. Get it off him now. And everyone's like, oh, what? really you, you don't like the new co- oh, okay well i guess i guess this is a pretty unanimous decision from everybody so and then they had like all the other characters in the west coast avengers being like you know when he changes his costume they're like oh yeah good we didn't want to tell you but that thing was horrible <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he is all over the map with that stuff i believe i don't know if you remember this but he was reintroduced out of spite where at first they were like oh this is a one-off character we can just call him wonder Woman, even though that's similar to wonder woman and then dc did grumble and they said like hey you can't do wonder man we have wonder woman and they're like don't worry he was just one-off character he's not coming back and then there was some other character i think it was a power man power girl type thing that then Marvel had Power Man, and then DC introduced Power Girl as a character. And Marvel's like, hey, you guys can't do Power Girl. We've got Power Man. And then they're like, I tell you what, out of spite, we should bring Wonder Man back to life to show the DC that we don't play that way. And that we're we're willing to, we're if they're going to violate our copyrights, we're going to violate their copyrights or trademarks or whichever is which. That's the only reason they brought Wonder Man back to life, if I remember correctly. Well, and that reminds me of that one all humorous, like single joke panel issue of what if, where at one point one of them was, hey, yeah, what if Wonder Man were a woman and what if Power Man were a girl? And then there was this little note like, hey, this is from the Marvel lawyers. Stop this right now because we don't want to get a lawsuit. All right. So um, I think that was all a reference back to this, the whole origin of Wonder Man being spiked, if I remember correctly. Sensationally written by Stan Lee, superbly illustrated by Don Heck, selectively inked by Dick Ayers, sufficiently lettered by Art Simak. We start out with Captain America just going to town on a giant looking Baron Zemo throwing his uh, shield at him. The next page, it turns out that he is so obsessed with Baron Zemo that he's actually hallucinating him and trying to attack him. We then get reminded that when we last saw Baron Zemo, uh, along with Executioner and Enchantress, Thor had sent them into a space warp, which they remind us can lead anywhere to a different city or a different universe. Well, apparently they've been stuck between the sixth and seventh dimensions ever since then. Baron Zemo is not happy about this. And after a while, the uh, Asgardians are like, oh, yeah, I forgot how impatient mortals can be. Uh, Okay, yeah, sure. We'll finally get us out of here. Anyway, they return to the Amazonian jungle where Baron Zemo has conquered the local people and carved out his little kingdom. So then we get introduced to Simon Williams for the first time. First thing we hear of him is there's a newspaper headline that says, Inventor Arrested for Embezzlement. Simon Williams admits guilt, blames Anthony Stark for downfall. And so he is in court, once again, I guess being arraigned. I don't know if I know those legal terms well, but let's go ahead and say that. And a pretty blonde woman in a green dress shows up to pay his bail. Like, who are you? It's like, "Eh, it doesn't matter. Just uh, come with me now. This is, of course, the Enchantress in disguise. You know, it's interesting with this being Don Heck inked by Dick Ayers. There are several places here where Dick Ayers is doing a really good Don Heck impression with his inks, and it's sort of sporadic. I almost sort of wonder if Don Heck had spot inked a few things before passing it on. On page four, the final panel, uh, where we see the close-up of Simon Williams' face, or not a close-up, but a relatively big showing of it, that looks like that's pure Don Heck. Yeah, that page, yeah, I would say Heck probably inked this whole page. Yeah, so we haven't really addressed the big tragedy of this issue yet, which is that the first eight right. issues of this book were penciled by Jack Kirby and presumably co-funded by him. And Kirby is gone. He is gone for good, never to return. And we and have not, Heck, not, who not, is... Not entirely true. He does do breakdowns or layouts for an upcoming issue. Then we've got Heck for the next 30 issues. It is pretty unbearable. 32 issues, I think, of Heck. He really does not do a great job. This is one of Marvel's preeminent books, and they are leaving it in the hands of one of their weakest pencilers for 
almost three years, which is criminal negligence. This tragically is the first of those issues. This is, you know, in many ways, a legendary issue. Wonder Man would go on to become a major character, but this issue will always be overshadowed by the tragedy of Kirby having left the book and Heck arriving as the underwhelming new penciler. And I think, as we mentioned uh, in the previous episode, we talked about this departure. I generally have been an improbable but indefatigable Heck defender in this And I will be less and less able to sustain that going forward as we get into more of this stuff. I don't know how much of it is just he doesn't lend himself towards a team book and how much of it is that he's being inked by other people or, you know, he just doesn't care about this particular material. I don't know. But yeah, it's going to be not all that great. After seeing a little montage of what the Avengers are doing in their private lives, we then go back down to the Amazon jungle and see uh, Simon Williams laid out on some kind of big super science hospital bed type of thing. Baron Zemo throws the switches and all the stuff happens. He gets shot with beams and stuff like that. At one point, Enchantress is saying, don't forget his other power, his invincibility. And so he's like, oh, yeah, sure. Let me go ahead and uh, just have these big buzz saws come down and try to cut him to show that nothing happens. Or I think that's what that is, isn't it? I can't figure out what's going on in that panel. Yeah. Terribly drawn by Heck. Yeah, uh, it, it, that's what I that's what I thought when I read through this uh, earlier. But now that I'm looking at it, I'm like, maybe that's not what it is. They go through all the powers that he's going to have. Then they're like, okay, it worked. The Avengers are as good as beaten. They tell Simon Williams, okay, yes, we've given you this fantastic power. And canonically, going forward, he is going to be one of the strongest members of the entire Marvel Universe. He is going to be right yeah. up there like just below Hulk and maybe Thor. So they've just imbued him with an incredible amount of strength and power and invulnerability. They say, ah, yes, one thing we didn't tell you, this treatment will kill you within a week. Wait, wait, what? He's like, oh yeah, except I do have an antidote and I can give it to you, but you have to get it every week. And so if I don't keep giving it to you, you will die. So you got to do what we wanted you to do. So he's like, okay, I guess I'm a villain now. Tell me what we're gonna what we're gonna crime next. So they give him his ridiculous outfit. We come back to New York. Baron Zemo, the executioner, and the enchantress are all engaging in a payroll robbery, which seems pretty pedestrian for these three. <laughs> but yes. that's kind of the whole point. They aren't really there to steal the payroll. They are there to try to insert Wonder Man into the Avengers as a spy. Now, I will say also at the bottom of page 10, the executioner's face there is just really weird and monstrous. Yes. See, I, I don't, something went wrong there. I don't know what, but <laughs> sign of things to come, right? Wonder Man suddenly shows up out of nowhere, beats the trio pretty much single-handed. Uh, Zemo escapes in his little thing that looks like a... a dart gun kind of ship that he heads off in and leaves Simon Williams Wonder Man behind and he's like I like to join the Avengers and they're like well you just helped us beat the bad guys uh yeah sure come on in no vetting necessary Simon Williams is trying to tell his uh story and as you said earlier he then says oh I was vacationing in South America when I was captured by a sinister scientist named Zemo as you're saying he's like oh wait did I say Zemo No, (laughs) what I meant to say. Uh, But then he forced me to act as a subject for some experiments, but I finally escaped him. But Captain America isn't having any of this. He says, no, it doesn't ring true. I admit Zemo has the skill to increase a man's strength, but he also has the brains to stop you from escaping unless this is a trick planned by Zemo himself. And uh, Zemo is apparently watching this on some kind of view screen and he is very upset that things aren't working out the way that he thought they should. Enchantress then... She sends a little whammy all the way up from South America to New York saying, you must save him. He is dying. You must. So, of course, you go to a bunch of superheroes when you have a medical problem. Yes. And so then we see the various scientists in the Avengers all using their various skills to try and come up with something. Actually uh, reminds me a little bit of the Death of Captain Marvel graphic novel from many, many years later. At some point, somehow... Wonder Man, who is infiltrating the Avengers, then goes back to South America to collaborate with his bad guys once again, which seems like a weird choice to make for the storytellers. You know? <laughs> like, yes. Okay. Um, sure, I guess. 
And there's some really weird storytelling choices that are made in here. And like things where Heck didn't really make stuff clear at all. So Lee is having to kind of fill in uh, what's going on. So what we don't see is that when Wonder Man came back to South America, he also brought Jan with him as a hostage. We never saw Jan get taken hostage. We never saw her being transported down here. We didn't see anything of her until it's like, oh, yeah, several panels later. Oh, yeah, yeah, here she is tied up in a dungeon. (laughs) At this point, it is so assumed that the women on the team will be taken hostage that they don't even have to show it. Like it does. It's not even worth devoting any panels to taking Jan hostage. It's just the default. And it just happens automatically off panel between panels. Oh, yes, of course, Jan has been taken hostage and now she's chained up in a dungeon. Yeah. And, you know, as as you pointed out earlier, you know, the female superheroes really seemed to be a lot more substantial and be able to stand up for themselves in first year or so of the Marvel Universe. But now that we're in well into its third year, is that right? Maybe about three years in uh, that has really fallen away. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are all just professional hostages for the most part here. And there are another couple of things like that in this issue that I remember noting at the time, but I don't remember what I, I don't remember exactly to point them out but there are a number of different things in here where you know lee is having to be like oh so even though we didn't see her being kidnapped she's kidnapped anyway all the avengers head down to south america under their own various powers baron zemo uses a big magnet to take iron man out of the game you'd think that if it was that easy to do people would have giant magnets and just be pulling him into that all the time Then we see Captain America's shield come through. Captain America throws his mighty shield, and those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. Then Thor shows up, so they all show up in uh, in sequence here. Thor, it turns out, can really be knocked for a loop by Wonder Man. So that's showing how powerful he really is. So then Wonder Man then covers up the pit that he has now knocked Thor into with a giant boulder. So Giant Man and Captain America getting down there, that's another thing where it just sort of happens off panel. Uh, Lee has to put in some dialogue there about like, oh, yes, no, well, they've chartered a private jet. That's how they're going to get here. (laughs) Well, he didn't want to have to draw Thor carrying Captain America and Giant Man the whole time he is flying down to South America. (laughs) Well, right. But I mean, you'd think they would have like at least one panel of the two of them in a plane. And then, you know, it's like in a private jet they chartered, you know, Giant Man and Captain America are on their way down. But nope, nothing like that. It's just, uh, okay, fine. Heck, you're not really doing the work that you're supposed to do as storyteller here. So I'm going to have to do it all through exposition. It looks like the Avengers are all pretty much beaten until Wonder Man decides, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and free Thor from in there. But now he can't move the stone nearly as easily as he could when he put it on there in the first place, which seems a little bit odd. But he moves that out of the way and Don Blake is able to slink out of there and grab his hammer. So on page 19... We see Simon Williams, Wonder Man, helping the bad guys clean up. And he's like, hey, you know, I need to get my medicine here. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that right after we kill the Avengers. We just need to kill them. Simon Williams is like, wait, what? Do you have to kill them? Why not just make them captives? And he says, none question Zemo's commands. If I do not choose to give you your life-saving antidote, you will be dead within hours. But he then realizes at that point, is his life really so precious that he will allow all of these heroes to be murdered just so that he can live another week of doing evil for this evil man. And he decides, no, that's not something I'm going to do. So he heroically sacrifices himself at the end. He drives off Zemo and his Asgardian compatriots, even though that means that he's about to die from the treatment. And so they have this whole moment where, uh, you know, Iron Man says he was a strange mixture of good and evil. If only we could have had more time, but then he dies. So, yeah, uh, is an odd introduction for a character who will go on to have a uh, relatively substantial career in the Marvel Universe. He has not appeared directly in the MCU, although he has been alluded to. They have. When have they alluded to him in the MCU? Oh, did you not know this? Yeah, no, I have uh, no idea what you're talking about. It was a movie that was in the movie. So a movie that was playing an MCU movie. I think it may have been a Stark biopic. And in that movie poster, it was a picture of Nathan Fillion's face. Ah, 
saying starring Simon Williams in front of a movie theater. So they have just cast Wonder Man. So they're making a Wonder Man TV show and they just cast their Wonder Man this week. Yeah, and he's black. They're doing Black Wonder Man. So they just announced this week they're doing a Disney Plus Wonder Man. So this issue has its ups and downs. Wonder Man, as we said, is going to be a substantial character going forward. His introduction here is kind of nice with his heroic sacrifice at the end after his unscrupulous thing that had sent him to court in the first place. And then his craven capitulation to the villains who had put him in this terrible situation. But then his noble sacrifice at the end. I like that story arc there. Nice little character arc done just in one issue. There are a lot of weird storytelling odds and ends in here where, you know, once again, Lee and Heck clearly were not on the same page with several things. Heck's art still has a few things to recommend it in this issue, but we're going to see less and less of that going forward, which is a shame. Yeah, we really are. I just looked it up and apparently Nathan Fillion appeared at Simon Williams on a movie poster in a deleted scene in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Oh, so I guess I must have just seen screenshots of the deleted scene. The story of Wonder Man is a powerful story, powerful enough where eventually they're like, hey, we should have gotten more use out of this character, even though, as I said, it's my understanding they brought him back just out of spite to uh, stick it to DC Comics that they had a character similar named. But I think that ultimately it is, you know, they were right to bring this character back, that this is a powerful story. It was nicely adapted later for Avengers vs. My Heroes cartoon. And it'll be interesting to see what they do with it in the MCU with the upcoming Disney Plus show. It's tragic to lose Kirby off the arc. He was really killing it and Heck is doing a terrible job. But to the degree that Heck is now the co-potter or solo potter of the book, I think he does a nice job with this first issue. I think it's a nice intro a worthy issue of the Avengers. the treatment of jan is unforgivable you know what has happened to jan where she can get taken hostage off panel it's so sad and definitely needs to be fixed and eventually will be fixed jan will eventually become the leader of the Avengers and a very solid character but it will take many years to get to that point ultimately this is a very poorly drawn issue and as you said very poor visual storytelling in terms of things that has to be explained through the dialogue but still a generally well-written issue that packs a lot of power in it that would be finally revivified over the course of many years as he would get literally revivified many times going forward. Some of this month is a little bit rote, but we had some nice high points, you know, not quite as consequential as our annuals episode. Still, once again, we're here to see the progression. We're here to see how things evolve over time. So I'm just continuing to be interested and fascinated by that. Yes. Having those two annuals Amazing Spider-Man Annual Run and Fantastic Four Annual Number Two in the same episode totally spoiled us. Now with these next two episodes <laughs> we've done focusing on October 1964, uh, month without any truly great issues has been a bit of a letdown. But there's still been some good issues this month. I enjoy this podcast. I read the books. I go back to and I take notes on the books. Then we go through and talk about the books, and I enjoy all three of those. We're having a lot of fun. And these are fun books. I like Marvel Comics. I like reading these. They can't all be as good as those two annuals. Yes, I guess that's it for now. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. And we look forward to being in your ears again in a couple of weeks. We may have Tech Week off work all going to Disney World together. Steve and I and our families are all going to take a week-long vacation in Disney World and Harry Potter World, assuming that COVID does not intervene again as it did last time. And we will see how that goes. So next time we'll see you, we will have been to the happiest place on earth. And hopefully (laughs) the whole thing will have not been a massive disaster as it was. Uh, Well, we, we cut, we recorded an episode where we talked about one of our previous trips to Disney world, and then we ended up ever releasing it. So maybe at some point in the future, we'll return back to that. And in that one, we're talking about, oh, yeah, our upcoming trip to Orlando. <laughs> and it's like, no, COVID said otherwise. So I think this is probably the fourth separate time we've tried to plan this trip. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> so hopefully it actually goes forward. Yes, we will see. Uh, we will know by the time we record our next episode. OK, we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. 
See you next time.